As we come to this text of Scripture, we come to, I think, one of the central issues for the Christian life, and probably one of the most important things that we can grasp um, and be confident of and trust, and that is the Word of God. From the readings, you probably would have known that God is telling us something. He's telling us that words matter, that words really matter. We live in a world and in a time, and it always has been this way, where deception and lying are rampant. We wonder sometimes, well, what is true today is not true tomorrow. And when we said what we said yesterday, we didn't have all the facts, and so we changed what we said yesterday to something different today. Do we know, that the, do you know, do we know what the agenda is that people always have behind the things that they say? Proverbs warns us again and again about the use of language. It talks about the danger, danger of flattery. It talks about the danger of the words of gangs of thuds. God warns us, as we've just read, of false prophets and false teachers. Libraries are full of books on science, philosophy, history, physics, that have theories and accounts that have all been proven wrong or that we no longer believe today. There is no infallible science textbook anywhere. There is no infallible history or physics or biology or psychology book anywhere. There are probably no greater words of deception today than words around gender and sexual identity and behavior. The Bible tells us, though, that truthful words endure, but a lying tongue only for a moment. And so the question that we wrestle with before us and Peter is dealing with is, who do we listen to? Whose lips speak truth? Whose lips are lying? How do we make our way through life when there are so many words? You see, Peter is facing this very issue as he's writing to these people that are scattered. We have the words of the prophets who are telling them that the power and the coming of Christ is going to happen. But on the other hand, we have the words of the false teachers who are spreading destructive heresies and denying the truthfulness of that claim. Who's right? Who do you listen to? Whose words are truthful? Are any words truthful? You see, Peter wants them to be sure about the second coming of Christ, the parousia of the Lord. He wants them to be certain that that day will come. How is he going to convince them? How is he going to drive home to them that there are words that have spoken these and they are trustworthy words? Here is how he puts it to them that they can be confident that the promise of Christ's coming is true. First of all, he talks about the transfiguration. We looked at that uh, last week, that they said they saw it with their own eyes. But he also now adds something This is absolutely critically important for us. He says, God has spoken to us about that day. There is an authoritative word. There is an authoritative source that tells us that day will come. And so we looked at last week, just as a reminder to pull us up to speed on them. He just begins in general by saying, you know, we have an authoritative source. That authoritative source is the prophetic word. He says, you will do well to pay attention to it until that day. That's a fascinating statement because what he's saying is he's referring to that day when Christ comes again, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that will come at the end of this age. 
And he says our certainty of the coming of Christ is not only something that's based in our witness, what we saw on that mountain, but he says we have an authoritative word, prophetic words. And as Peter's encouragement was to them last week, or to them, and as we looked at last week, is you will do well to pay attention to that word. He's telling them there is an authoritative word, and you ought to listen to it. And it will, be, it will go well for you if you listen to it. But he didn't want to leave it there. He, he didn't want to leave it because there are probably some that are reading this letter back then, and there's many today who are probably hearing this for the first time. We're not Jews, and so we don't have the same confidence or understanding about the prophetic word. And so the Jewish understanding of the prophetic word needed to be filled out a little bit. And the conviction that the Jews had about those words needed to be explained to everyone who was listening. So Peter does something fascinating. He moves from talking about the end of Scripture, and that's what he says. We have the prophetic word until when? Until that day. There is coming a day, that day when Christ returns, when the perfect temporal revelation of Scripture will be replaced by the perfect eternal revelation of Christ. So he's saying there is a coming and end to the prophetic word. And so he moves from talking about the end of Scripture, when Christ comes back, to how we got Scripture, the origin of Scripture. He moves to the very beginning of Scripture, where, where we got it from and its source. And again, he wants them to work this through. He wants to, to encourage them. He wants to bring a conviction in them about whose words they ought to listen to. Because, as I'm saying, you read through the book of Peter and you will find two words. You will find the words of the prophet, which tell us one thing and tell us how to live one way. And you will find the words of false prophets who will arise among us. And they will tell us another thing. They will tell us, ah, don't listen to that. Oh, you can live this way. Oh, there's no consequences. God's, not, God's a God of love. Whose words do we listen to? You see, notice Peter makes this fascinating statement. He says, there have been false, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, there have been false prophets, or false, or there have been false prophets among the people in the past. We just read that from Deuteronomy chapter 18. All through the history of the world, there have been those who claim to speak for God. But they've been false prophets. And then he says, and there will be false teachers among you today. Nothing has changed. There will continually be those who reject the authority of God, who deny the authority of Scripture, and they will come among you and they say, that's a bunch of bunk. I'm still debating on whether or not in the middle of this series to stop and do one or two weeks on this deconversion trend that is happening in the world around us. Famous Christians, or those who proclaimed faith, are now going online and on YouTube and are publicly denouncing their faith, publicly saying that the Word of God is not true, publicly saying that the God of the Bible is not the God that's described there, publicly saying that sexual morality doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. These are those who used to at one time proclaim Christ and are now denying everything that the Bible tells us about how we ought to live and who God is. Loved ones, again, so who do you listen to? Why? Why do you choose to listen to that person over that person? 
What words we listen to will determine the course of our life presently and the course of eternity for us. I was thinking, there's probably no important question you can ever ask yourself is whose words will I trust? Whose words will I believe? And so Peter makes this subtle adjustment which has massive implications. He says, you will do well to listen to the prophetic words. And then he says, those prophetic words are scripture. And by scripture, he means the word of God. And so here in this, these couple verses, verse 20 and 21, we have two of, I think, some of the most important words in the Bible about the nature and the origin of the Bible. And behind what Peter says is, uh, when he says to them, pay attention, is the assumption that the prophetic words that he's talking about are, in fact, Scripture, and therefore God's Word. Notice in verse 19, Peter writes, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. As I said last week, the Jewish person would automatically think, well, that's obviously talking about Scripture. But Peter doesn't leave it to doubt at all. He makes it very, very clear what the Jewish believers would have assumed, that the prophetic word is, in fact, the specific word of God. No prophecy of Scripture, he says in verse 20. So he's connecting the prophetic word with the prophecy of Scripture. And this word, Scripture, is the word in Greek, which is graphe which means a written-down word, a recorded word. When we, graphy, we, we know that in many different ways. It's, a, it's got a lot of different associations. And so what he's saying is the words of the prophets are graphe, written down. They are inscripturated. And we know them to be the living words of God. He's going to have more to say about this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, where he tells us to pay attention to the commands of the Lord. And he tells us to, to pay attention to the predictions of the prophets. And then in uh, 3 verse 16, where he talks about Paul's writings, which were also Scripture, or written down. And he says, Scripture attests to its divine origin. You read the Bible all over the place, and you'll read, God said, or God spoke, or uh, I was reading, actually, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses went up to the mountain a second time with tablets that he had prepared after he smashed them the first time. And it, and it says, as you read the text, God wrote on those tablets. God actually wrote his word on those tablets that Moses brought up to him. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God, and then he tells us what it's profitable for. Many of you, as you read the Old Testament, you will read various scriptures in which it says, this is the word of the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. I was reading in uh, Isaiah just this week about Isaiah addressing the people of Israel, and he says, this is the word of the Lord, your maker, who shaped you from birth. In another place, he says, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, not just Israel's Lord, but the host of all of heavens and all the armies of heaven and all the armies of earth. This is what the Lord of hosts says. See, what Peter is telling us is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us in words. In words that he has spoken to us. And this is what Peter means then when he writes, no prophecy of Scripture 
He means that God, our maker, the Lord of heaven and earth, has spoken. And we have a record of God's spoken words, Scripture, the writing of the prophets. In other words, there is in human language, listen to this, a very record of the word of God. And what Peter wants us to understand is just as God spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration and they heard his voice, they heard his words, in just the same way God spoke through men who recorded his very words. Do you see what Peter is doing here? He is saying that not all words are the same. Not all words come from God. And, and he says you would do well to give attention to the prophetic word, the word of Scripture, because they are the very words of God. And not all words purport to come from him. And Peter is contrasting those two words. He's contrasting the words of the prophets in Scripture with the words of the false teachers who are among them. And he's saying there is a qualitative difference between those two. It is so important that we grasp this. Because what Peter is saying and what the Word of God says is that in Scripture, we have an authoritative word that is outside of us. It doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come from our imaginations. It doesn't come from the imagination of every, any man or woman. It is a word that comes to us outside of us from God. It is a word then that is a stable word. It doesn't shift with time. It doesn't change with culture. It isn't filled with the deceitfulness of the human heart. In Scripture, we have a stable, fixed word. And therefore, the meaning is stable and fixed, even if we change. Somebody say, really? Really, you ask? What do you mean, Peter? Well, Peter says this. Scripture does not originate in the mind of man. Look at what he says, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's interpretation. Now, this is a, this is a word that has come with a lot of challenges, this, this particular phrase. And you can go and read a number of different translations, and you will see the challenges that are in this particular phrase. There's a group of translations that, that follow the line of thinking that says what Peter is talking about here is the use of Scripture or even how we understand it. And the other translations place the emphasis on the origin of Scripture. Where did Scripture come from? And it's really important to distinguish between that. Is Peter talking about how we are to use Scripture? Or is Peter talking about where Scripture came from? In other words, is Peter saying this? We can't study Scriptures for ourselves. The new um, uh, Jerusalem Bible says this. This is at the same time we must reconcile, or we must recognize that the interpretation of scriptural prophecy is never a matter for the individual. The Roman Catholic Church takes that view. In other words, it says you on your own can't understand Scripture properly; that you need the church to interpret it for you. You need the church to explain it to you. You can't learn it on your own. That's what. 
that's how a, a train of thinking is here. And we say, well, is that really true? Can I not understand the scripture for myself? Do I need the church as a formal body or pastors and elders to give me the authoritative interpretation of scripture? And is that interpretation then um, somehow codified as the only interpretation? Well, I would say we certainly need pastors and teachers. The Bible tells us that we need them. We need them to teach sound doctrine to us, to give us understanding and to explain Scripture to us. But we also need to study Scripture for ourselves. You read Psalm 119. You, you read uh, Paul in, in, I think it's Timothy, where he says, study to show yourselves approved. We need to be Berean-like. We need to go on our own and, and make sure that what our leaders are telling us and what the church is telling us actually corresponds with Scripture. We need to meditate on it and memorize it and delight in it. This view seems to miss, I think, the train of scriptural thought, which says, no, we have all these different ways in which we come to understand Scripture. So I don't think that the translations that talk about the use of Scripture are correct. I think the second question, then, is Peter saying that Scripture is not a human book that comes from the mind of man. For instance, the NIV captures this where it says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. The English Standard Version also says the same thing, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. In other words, what Peter is saying is you have to get this right before you move on. As, as we are thinking about the Bible, as we're thinking about whose words we listen to, the origin of words matter. And so Peter's saying, okay, you've you got you to gotta listen to the words of prophecy. You've got to pay attention to them because they're important. Prophecy is the word of God. It's scripture. And you have to know where it comes from. He first it states it negatively. It is not something that comes from the imagination or the mind of men. It's not the product of human thought or imagination. It's wholly different in its origins. I can't read it. I'm going to run out of time. I'd encourage you to read Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16, for about eight or nine verses, and you'll, you'll see there the, 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 the fact that there are those that speak for God or claim to speak for God but don't, and they speak what comes from their own mind. And so are you following what Peter's saying here? When we put the prophetic words, Scripture, up against the words of the false teacher, which is destructive heresies, we're not comparing apples to apples. They have two totally different sources. And the result, therefore, is a qualitative difference between those words. Pastor Andrew read from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18 there. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command. Do you understand? Do you, do you understand what he's saying? These words that we have in this book do not come from the mind of man. 
These are the very words of God. It is as though God is speaking to us from heaven. Anybody who says, I've never heard God speak, has never read the Bible. Because everywhere on the pages of the Bible, we have the words of God. We hear the voice of God exactly the same way as Peter, James, and John heard the voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the argument that Peter is putting forth to them. And so he says, well, if it doesn't come from the mind of man, how did, how did we get it? Well, notice what Peter says then in verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Whoa, just a minute here. Is that what you Christians believe? Absolutely. I believe it with all of my heart. Scripture is otherworldly. It comes to us from heaven. It comes to us like the words of God spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration came to James, John, and Peter. It was born to them as God spoke to them. You say, well, that's news to me. I never knew that's how we got Scripture. Well, how, what's the gist of it? Well, how does that work then, Paul? How does, what does Scripture mean when it says that, that, that men spoke from God as they were born along or carried along by the Spirit of God? Well, the gist of it is this, that God used the skills, intellect, and personality of fallible men to speak and write down what is entirely divine and infallible. Do you understand that? That God used fallible human men with all their personality and all their characteristics and all their background and all their upbringing and spoke through them to write words which are infallible and divine. That's what Scripture is. That's how Scripture came to us. Let's make clear that we understand what Peter is not saying then. Peter is not saying that the speakers and the writers of Scripture were automatons. That they kind of went into zombie mode and they, they kind of sat somewhere on a desk and all of a sudden their brains shut down and, and God just took a hold of their, their, their hands and, and they just started writing. And then at the end of the process, they woke up and bambo, there was the scriptures. It's not a sort of a stenographer view of scripture, that you would have a court stenographer who sits at a typewriter and types word for word what she hears. Scripture was not dictated from God to men. But rather, Peter is saying that God the Holy Spirit, and I, I wanted to actually do another sermon on the Trinity, because in these verses you have, you have the Trinity. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. It's so important that we understand that God is one essence in three persons. But maybe another time. Peter is saying that God the Spirit so directed the spoken and the written words of men while they spoke and wrote from their own backgrounds and intellects and perspectives so that what they wrote were the very words of God. 
Peter uses a little word, which we need to think a little bit about, because he uses it three times. The Greek is pharaoh. This isn't the Egyptian pharaoh. This is the Greek word pharaoh. And it means to carry along or to be driven along or to be borne along. You find it in places, for instance, a lot of commentators go to Acts chapter 27, where there's that um, Paul is on a boat and he's heading to Rome and there's this great storm that comes along. And finally, they just give up all hope and they just let the wind bear them along or carry them along. So they just passively uh, sat on the boat and just let the wind do its thing. I, I think that's kind of helpful, but I, I don't think that really does justice to what Peter is saying here. The immediate context is really helpful because that same word is used in verse 17 and 18 and then twice in verse 21. And the emphasis isn't where does the word originate from? Jesus heard the word. The words of the disciples heard was borne along to them from heaven. It was carried along to them from heaven. It came from God. Just as God spoke on the mountain and the words he spoke was borne along to Peter, James, and John and they heard it, so God spoke through men and his word was borne along to them so that they wrote and recorded the very words of God. So again, loved ones, Scripture is just as much the voice of God as is the word that James and John and Peter heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let that think in, sink in just a little bit to our hearts and minds. I've said it again, and we just got to repeat it. What Peter is getting at is this. That on the Mount of Transfiguration, they heard a voice from heaven. And in the same way, when you read Scripture, it is though you audibly hear the voice of God borne along to you. You hear the voice of God speaking to you under the superintendent of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of Scripture that talks about this. Um, 2 Samuel 23, 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. We just thought about this in, uh, as we were leading up to Pentecost. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. There it is. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. Or in Acts chapter 28, verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your prophets or your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. You understand? He's saying that the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah. The Holy Spirit spoke through David. And you might say to me, well, Paul, you, you can't be serious. Really? Are you trying to tell me, Paul, that the Bible is both a human book and a divine book? That's exactly what I'm telling you. That it was written by human beings, but is fully divine in its inspiration. You might say, well, I'm not sure if I buy that, Paul. Would you believe that Christ was fully human, yet without sin, and also God? We believe that about Christ, right? Fully human in every way, just like us, but without sin. But he was also God. In the same way, the Bible 
is fully human and yet without error. But it's also the very, very word of God. As I was thinking this, God has spoken and that changes everything. Finally, one final point then is necessary. If these are the very words of God, then Scripture is without error. You understand that? If these are the very words of God, then they are without error. What do we mean when we say that the Scripture is without error? Well, in a nutshell, I mean that in all it claims, in all the Scriptures claim, it is true. Every word. Peter has reminded us that Scripture, the words of prophecy, did not come from the imagination of men. They came from God through the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is equating the voice of God heard from heaven with the voice of God spoken in Scripture. So then, if Scripture is the very word of God through and through, it must be true. That's not a jump in logic, or it's not without reason. It's a natural conclusion. If God is who he says he is, if God is right and perfect and holy and true and God cannot lie, then when we have the word of God, it is a holy, true God in all it claims to be true. As Paul writes somewhere, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. And the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say. And you will win your case in court. What the Bible tells us then is authoritative. It is true, and it is a true and accurate record of all it teaches and affirms, and as such, never makes a mistake. Loved ones, you've got to ask yourself this, this question. If it is not all true, then what is and isn't? And if it is not all true, then who is the arbitrator of that? Who, who wants to step forward and say, well, I, I know that Genesis 1 to 2 is myth. But the word of God actually starts in Genesis chapter 3. Who wants to say that the words of God about marriage are true, but the word of God about sexual activity outside of marriage isn't true? Who has the authority to do that? In fact, the Bible is very careful in making sure that we don't do that. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The book of Revelation says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy... God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught by the scriptures, 
and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's a, that's a beautiful word. Notice the connection between the past and the present. What was written in the past, everything in this book, is written for you and I today. There's an eternal reality about this book. There's an eternal benefit from this book. There's an eternal joy from this book. This is eternal life. And notice that you can't pick and choose, though. It says that everything that was written in the past, not just the stuff that we like, not just the stuff which, which our, our, our sinful lives want to accept, but our sinful lives don't want to accept, everything that was written in the past is good for the present. And notice the psychological and emotional design of Scripture that we might learn from examples of endurance and so gain encouragement and hope from Scripture. I was reading a book which I mentioned last week to us from J.I. Packer. I just want to end with a few quotes from it. I hope they're not too much. But he just drives home this importance of inerrancy to us. Verbal currency, as we know, can be devalued. Any word may have some of its meaning rubbed off. And this has happened to all my preferred terms for stating my belief about the Bible. I hear folk declare scripture inspired and in the next breath say that it misleads from time to time. I hear them call it infallible and authoritative and find that they mean only that its impact on us and the commitment to which it leads us will keep us in God's grace, not that all of it is true. He says, that's not good enough for me. I want to safeguard the historic evangel evangelical meaning of these three words and to make clear my intention as a disciple of Christ to receive as from the Father and the Son all that the Scripture, when properly interpreted, that is, understood from within in terms of his own frame of references, proves to be affirming. He goes on and he says this, and this is, I won't read them all. This is the last quote I want to read from Packer. I, I found this so helpful. He says that in formulating my theology, my, my way of living, my, my way of understanding the Bible, in formulating my theology, I shall not consciously desire, deny, disregard, or arbitrarily relativize anything that I find in the Bible's writer's teaching. Nor... Cut the knot of any problem of biblical harmony, factual or theological, by assuming that the writers were not consistent with themselves or with each other. Instead, I shall labor to harmonize and integrate all that is taught without remainder, to take it as from God, however little I may like it, and to seek actively to live by it, Whatever change of my present beliefs and behavior patterns it may require, this is what the acceptance of the Bible as wholly God-given and totally true requires of us. You understand what Peter is saying? There's different words in the world. But we have the words of Scripture. They don't come to us from man, 
They come to us from God. And therefore, we can trust them. Therefore, we can stake our lives on them. Therefore, we should pattern our behaviors after them. And therefore, what this word says about Jesus Christ is so true. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we call upon the name of Jesus, he will save us. These are God's words of assurance to us, regardless of how we feel, regardless of the level of guilt we experience. We can trust the word of God and what it says to us about Jesus Christ and everlasting life. Father, we come to you today. I can't think of something more important for us to settle in our hearts and lives than is do we believe the Bible to be true? Where did it come from? How did we get it? Whose word is it? Because, Father, in your word, in what we call the scriptures, we have words that are so contrary to so many of the words around us in this world. How do we know which word to believe? Well, Peter begins by helping us understand we know how and why to believe the scripture because of how we got it because of where it came from. Father, would you affirm that reality in our lives? Would you remind us that we can't play fast and loose with the Scripture? Would you remind us that all Scripture is given for our benefit? That everything that was written, Father, was written for our encouragement and to give us hope? Father, would we see that even about the hard bits of Scripture? challenging bits of Scripture, the lifestyle upheaval parts of Scripture. Because you are our maker, and you know best how we ought to live, what we ought to know. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.